Hello, listeners. Beginning with this episode and going forward, we will be including our content warnings in the text description of the episode, which you will be able to find either on our website or in the description section on your podcaster of choice. Please make sure to check those content warnings before listening to this episode and all of the rest. Take care of yourself while listening. And now, here we go. Listeners, and welcome to Classically Trained, a podcast where we discuss modern media that depicts the ancient Mediterranean world, its peoples, and its stories. I am Julia, your resident Greek literature person and, like, language scholar-ish. And I am Allison, your classical archaeologist. And today, we are talking about Supernatural. (laughs) I, we both decided that this would be funny so we're doing it yeah sorry to everybody i guess who want actually wanted to listen to this yeah i am so sorry just on like a general level to anybody who had to be obsessed with supernatural as a tween i but okay you use had here i whilst having been obsessed with Sherlock and Doctor Who did not jump full on into supernatural obsession. I was never really a supernatural stan, despite being like surrounded by a bunch of other people who were really into supernatural. I was basic. I was a full super hulock. A full super hulock. Okay. Yeah. I was quite obsessed with supernatural for like a long time. I wasn't, like, the worst of the worst. I definitely met fans who were, like, even to my degree of being in the fandom, I was like, you are way too fucking obsessed with this. And also, this fandom contains some content. Let's put it that way. Yes. And also, okay, so for people, if somehow you were not on the internet in 2012, Supernatural had a really big following on Tumblr. And yeah. just, like, a really big fandom in general. People were doing a lot of fandom content around it. Yeah. Um, it was part of the unholy trinity that was Super Hulock. Which, um, for those who don't know, and God bless you if you don't, but I am going to inform you now, was the sort of amalgamated fandom for Supernatural, Doctor Who, specifically the rebooted Doctor Who that was really at its height at that time, and uh, Sherlock, the BBC Sherlock with Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman. None of which really, I mean, Doctor Who has managed to recover itself from the depths of being bad. Doctor Who, okay, I, look, this is not a Doctor Who podcast right now, but yeah, uh, Sherlock sure was a thing that existed, and so was Supernatural. Not to say that there were parts of Supernatural that weren't there were parts of it where the writing was well done, the the plot construction was well done. And the um, thing is, the first, I think, like, four or five seasons, I believe the original writer had kind of plotted out the overarching, like, yeah. thing that was going to happen. It was just then, after about season five, they just kept getting renewed, and it went to shit quite rapidly. Yes, and it went on for another ten seasons. 
Yeah, it went to it had fifteen seasons. Um, and so I, I guess if you if you don't know what Supernatural is, I will give a quick summary. Yeah. So Allison, tell us what Supernatural is. Supernatural is a two thousand five paranormal drama which follows the adventures of two brothers, Sam and Dean Winchester, as they hunt down a variety of supernatural creatures. Although Supernatural has an overarching plot, most of the episodes are Monster of the Week style. And I mean, that's the basic premise of the show. It's these two brothers. They're on the road together. They drive around in a black, it's a 67 Chevy Impala, I believe. Uh, Yeah, I think so. And the car is important. (laughs) And partway through into the show, they gain a, a companion in the form of an angel named Castiel, who is not actually he's kind of sir not appearing in these episodes for the stuff that we're actually going to talk about today which is quite funny yeah given that he was like one of my favorite characters back when i was actually into this show but he becomes extremely plot relevant but he's still a secondary character the brothers are the main characters their Mm -hmm. relationship is what the show is about fundamentally and yeah they they travel around the u.s hunting monsters everything from like pretty mundane like ghosts and shit to like literal demons yeah um in fact literal demons are like mid-scale i would say yeah well so it's also gods it's also (laughs) worth noting that because this show had 15 seasons and i don't know if all of the seasons were 23 episodes but a lot of them were 23 i think i think all except for the last season they had to come up with a lot of monsters of the week so they're really pulling from everywhere i think another thing that is also worth noting and is maybe like relevant to the way that we experience supernatural fandom is that supernatural is filmed in vancouver yeah it was filmed like where we live so when I was in high school, I actually went to SBN Con. Oh my god. I think I, I, went, I never went. I think I went once. I mean, okay, so SBN Con was the kind of supernatural specific. It was a small convention that happened. It happened in a bunch of places. Like, I actually think that they did hold them in other mm. cities. But Vancouver was always kind of the main one because, of course, this is where the cast and crew were most of the time because the show was primarily filmed in and around Vancouver. But yeah, I I was that level of into it. I didn't meet Misha Collins at one point, who plays Castiel, Castiel because he had this like international scavenger hunt thing that he ran every yeah. year called Gishwes that I participated in a few years, and he would hold like events and like would meet up and do something for the scavenger hunt. So I actually met Misha Collins at a Gishwes event as well. <laughs> Just every everybody who was like a. In fandom of any sort in Vancouver, met Misha Collins at a Gishwes event in like 2012, probably. Even though I went to SBN Con, I never enjoyed it that much. Like, I was not that interested in the actors, mm, really. Yeah. Whereas, like, a big part of the fandom was being obsessed with the actors. Like, there was a lot of, like, RPF being written and stuff. That was like a shout big out to the shout out to the the J two fandom, the people who shipped Jared and Jensen, who played <laughs> Dean and Sam for originating Alpha Beta Omega. Really? Yeah. Well, I did not know that was the or- origination. Yes. that's not a word, but you get what I mean. Of yeah. Alpha Beta Omega. Oh God. Under no circumstances will we be explaining what Alpha Beta Omega is to anybody who does not already know. No, you can Google that if you want. Um, it is just like not go safe look it up. <laughs> Maybe go look it up on Fanlore Wiki. A shout out to the organization for transformative works for maintaining that. 
It's nice and informative and like not to not safe for work <laughs> if you really want to know, but like you don't want to know. I love reminiscing about like the fandom days of yore. Yeah. I had a lot of fun as a dumb teenager doing dumb fandom stuff. <laughs> oh, absolutely. So to get into like the stuff that we are actually talking about in this podcast, we're going to talk about three episodes that deal with classical material in some way. There's actually a few more episodes that we could have talked about. One of them is from much earlier in the show, back when the show was like actually still pretty good. Uh, the, um, the episode Hammer of the Gods was in season five, which is like generally agreed to be like a decent season. Mm -hmm. But we chose not to do that one because there's a cameo in it from the god Mercury, but like beyond that, there's not a huge amount. Of, it doesn't really deal with classical myth or civilization in any other way, so it's pretty marginal, but that exists. And I think there's a few other mentions here and there of like classical mythology or classical monsters, but nothing substantial enough that we felt it was worth taking the time to like dig into. I don't know, maybe we'll record some errata at some point. Yeah, I mean, these were just, like, we just decided to do three episodes because it's, like, a good amount of material. And these are all episodes that have, like, a classical character as, like, a central character or a central villain. So... Or both. Uh, or both, yes. Yeah. Um. So, the three episodes that we're going to talk about are The Slice Girls, which is from season seven... Remember the Titans, which is from season eight, and fan fiction, which is from season 10. As you can tell, these are all episodes from like later seasons, and I personally watched into season eight, I believe. I don't remember seasons seven and eight very well, but I'm pretty sure that I did watch them, at least like some of the episodes. But I think I stopped watching mid-season eight, and I know that I didn't watch season nine or beyond. So, yeah, I never, so I think I watched seasons one and two and most of seasons four and five and maybe a bit of season six, but I never watched past those seasons. So I had never seen any of these before, um, but I had, I have seen a reasonable amount of Supernatural. I know a reasonable amount about, like, supernatural canon, and at least enough for these episodes to make sense to me. Yeah. And, yeah, I guess before we jump in, we should say whether or not we liked them. Okay. I, You know, I'm gonna give these three episodes a rating out of ten, and okay. then why don't you do the same? Okay. So, the Slice Girls, I'm gonna give, like, a... I think I'm just gonna go with a straight-up, like, 2.5 out of ten. The Slice Girls was very bad. I did not like it. Remember the Titans, I will give a 6 out of 10. Uh, Julia hated that episode more than me. Yeah. But, but I I think that, like, a, there's one aspect of it that's really, really bad, and then the rest of it is fine. Um, And then fan fiction, I actually enjoyed. I'll give it, like, I think I'll give Ant fan fiction, like, a 7.5 out of 10. It was a solid B+. Yeah. I mean, I'll start at the top and say, like, I, I'll also give fanfiction, in fact, I'll give fanfiction, like, a solid eight. Mm -hmm. I think it was, like, a pretty decent episode. And as I said before, it's very meta, and I think that, like, aside from a little bit of, like, autofellatio, <laughs> the... It's overall meta in, like, a good and funny way. Yeah. And not too, like, 
it's not just the writers jerking themselves off to their own genius. It's like actually uh-huh. kind of a fun like examination. Do you want to rephrase that in a way that's safe for work? No. Anyway, yeah. So I did. So I did like fan fiction. I would say uh, the other two. I'm gonna say Slice Girls gets a two. Hmm, yeah. Maybe a one and a half. <laughs> and Remember the Titans gets like a three. <laughs> Only because the actual line to line writing in Remember the Titans was better than it was. Oh, in yes. Slice Girls. No, it was, I would say it was significantly better. Yeah. But I, beyond that, hated everything about that episode. <laughs> Let's start with Slice Girls, which I will give a little summary of. Yeah. So Sam and Dean hunt down a group of murderous women who turn out to be the Amazons. However, Dean discovers that one of them is his daughter and that she's out to kill him. Yeah, so that's the episode. I think it's worth mentioning that that what he actually discovers is that he has slept with one of them and literally overnight she has given birth and this girl has now in, like, another 24 hours, the girl has grown up and is now coming to kill him. The, yeah. There's, yeah. like... There's an, there is an immediacy to it. And and that this, like, hooking up, instantly getting pregnant, instantly giving birth, instant growth in, like, like 70... It's, like, three days or something yeah. like that, is, like, something that the writers choose to build into the mythos of the Amazons. Yes. So, here's what I have to say about the Amazons. <laughs> I will read you the exact phrasing of the note that I have in my notes for discussion. No more straight people writing about the Amazons. <laughs> I, I agree. You know what? This Supernatural achieved a real feat here, which is they managed to make the Amazons significantly worse than the Amazons in Troy Fall of a City. Yeah. Like, th- these Amazons are, you could not write the Amazons more poorly. <laughs> yeah. It's like, listen, it's hard to find what I would straightforwardly call just, like, up-and-up misogyny in media these days. Yeah. Because so much media nowadays at least makes like a gesture towards feminism and like girl power or whatever and it just ends up being like shitty girl boss feminism and that has other like more intersectional issues but at least it's not up and up misogyny Mm -hmm. this is just misogyny no no it is just these women who are murdering men after they use them to produce more amazons yeah. And they're murderous and evil for no apparent reason. And they're like, you know, they're they're like seductresses or whatever. Yeah. I can't um, even say that it's like a disgusting, like queerphobic, man-hating lesbian thing because they're not lesbians. No. They're emphatically not lesbians. They're, they're man-hating straight women. Yes. Who like do this whole thing for no apparent reason. Yeah. No, it's um pretty unbearable. Also- a lot of parts of this episode were unbearable. It's like not not only is there this heaping misogyny, the filmography in this episode is like particularly bad. Yeah. All of the scenes where the Amazons are murdering are just filmed like terribly. 
that they're using these angles that because, are... Because because they're trying to disguise that the murderers are women. Yes, I know, but it, it's, it's really done bad. very badly. Yeah, it's... And also, this episode endorses shooting a teenage girl in the face. I don't know if she gets shot in the face. I think she gets shot in the chest. She gets... Dean murders a teenage... Or no, Sam. Sam, Sorry. Sam Sam murders murders a teenage girl who happens to also be Dean's Amazon daughter. So... Yeah. um, So... That's an interesting vibe that they went with. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll talk... Let's circle back to that in a second. But let's let's finish up with, like, the Amazons. Yeah. Um, I will say about the misogyny, too, while... Yeah, it's definitely not so much... It's not so common these days. But in this episode came out in 2012. And... Oh boy, was there still a lot of, like, direct misogyny on TV in 2012. Yeah. Like, this was around the same time as, like, Stephen Moffat writing Amy Pond, a female character in Doctor Who, and, like, the amount of misogyny that Stephen Moffat just, like, threw into season six of Doctor Who is, like, truly outstanding. It was definitely sort of more common, especially in, like, genre fiction, I think, at this period, to just be hella misogynistic. Yeah. And I will say, like... Even aside from the fact that this portrayal of the Amazons is incredibly misogynist, like, it's also just, like, a really shitty take on Amazon mythology. Like, they really did a messy job of it. Well, it's really bastardized. Spoiler, all of the takes on all of the mythology are terrible. I mean, yeah. Um, (laughs) So They're not using their classical material very well at any point in any of these episodes, really. Yeah. I mean, okay, so... To, like, circle around a little bit to talk about what this podcast is nominally about, which is the classical material in this television. So the version of the legend of the Amazons that they give is that they were, like, essentially, like, an independent civilization produced by, according to the episode, the coupling of uh, the goddess Harmonia and Ares, there was, the Amazons were warrior women, whatever, they were involved in, and I quote, a long bloody war during which their population was decimated. And after that, they make some kind of deal with Harmonia for this, like, method of rapid reproduction, as well as their, like, powers, so that they can defend themselves. I believe that's more or less how it goes. So, first of all, this, like, oh, Harmonia and Ares like, fucked in order to produce the Amazons thing that does actually come from a classical source. Interesting. Yeah, uh, I looked this up. Apparently, it does actually come from uh, from the Argonautica. Oh. Yeah. I okay. think it's not, I think it's not very, I mean, you know, I suspect, I, sus- I think that's the only source, but, like, well, there's some, like, man murdering that happens in the Argonautica so this is like thematic. Okay well would you like to tell our listeners about the Argonautica like what it is? Uh yeah so the Argonautica is a Greek epic written written in the Hellenistic period by Apollonius of Rhodes uh, that tells the story of Jason and the Argonauts and their quest to retrieve the golden fleece. It's kind of a romantic epic because it also tells the story of Jason meeting and falling in love with Medea and her fleeing her father's kingdom with Jason etc. The back half is like very much about her and him and their relationship. But first, the Argonauts have a bunch of adventures on their way to the east. I can't to remember. Colchis. 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 Yes, yeah, yeah, the yeah. island where the Golden Fleece is. Yeah, that sounds right. 
in any case, one of the things that happens in it is they come across, like, I think it's an island where it's, like, all women, and they're like, why is this island all women? What happened to all the men? And it turns out that the women have killed all of the men. Great. And they try to, like, seduce the sailors. Okay. Um, And are these women supposed to be Amazons? I don't think they're really supposed to be Amazons. Okay. Because they're doing it more by, like... They're doing it more by, like, seduction and deception rather than that they have, like, martial prowess. I don't really believe that they're supposed to be the Amazons, but there's a strong parallel. Oh, okay. So are these these women who are doing all the murdering the children of Ares and Harmonia? No. Okay. So then where does Ares and Harmonia come into this? It just, like, gets mentioned, I guess, in the the Argonautica. All right. Yeah. That tends to be how a lot of these things are. It's like, these are not central characters, but we'll randomly mention this. Yeah, no, so these women that they meet are, it's the island of Lemnos, and the queen Hypsipyle, like, falls in love with Jason on the spot, and it's kind of a mix between, like, an Amazon myth and uh, the Lotus Eater story in the Odyssey, where they, like, the sailors get, like, seduced by the women, and they lose a bunch of time on Lemnos, because Mm -hmm. they're enjoying themselves in these women's beds, and then Heracles is like... What the fuck are you people doing? We need to get going. Yeah. I think so. Basically, what we're saying is that misogyny is uh, endless and has been put into fiction for literally thousands of years at this point. Yeah. I find it very funny that they went with, and by funny, I mean terrible, that they went (laughs) with an origin for the Amazons that comes from the Argonautica, which is about Jason, who is the worst chief misogynist. Oh yeah, Jason is absolutely chief misogynist. <laughs> he sucks so fucking much. Yeah, Jason, all of the good shit that happens to him is basically because a goddess decides that she likes him. And then he goes around fucking everybody else's shit up for a million years. So yeah, Jason sucks. In conclusion. Yep. And yeah, and then this story about the Amazons getting decimated in a war, like... I don't know. I I actually don't know if that's related to a specific thing or if it's just like, oh, there's like a number of myths where the Greeks and the Amazons get into fights. Mm -hmm. Sometimes in ones where, where like they all get killed or where something like bad happens to them. There's a couple of stories about Hippolyta or Hippolyta, the like queen of the Amazons who has interactions with both Theseus and Heracles. Mm -hmm. But also supposedly the Amazons were still around as like a people by the time we get to Alexander the Great because there's like a notorious anecdote about Alexander fucking the queen of the Amazons, which obviously did not happen. But that's a case of like historical kind of like syncretism, I guess. Yeah. If I don't think that's the right word between the like mythological stories we have about the Amazons and the actual kind of women forward warrior tribes of the steppes that Alexander would have met with like the Scythians. Yeah. Yeah. Um and I mean, yeah, the the Amazons are like a mythological representation of foreign powerful foreign women that are like to be feared. Yeah. So the fact that they sort of get like put in place in certain historical narratives like makes a lot of sense because they are like reflecting a historical anxiety. So yeah. It's a mix of a reflection of a of a cultural anxiety about what would ha- what would happen to society if women were in power, namely that women would take over everything and destroy all the men and everything would go to hell 
And then, like, obviously these women who are in power are the enemies of civilization, rah! In the same way that the centaurs are representative of kind of the generic barbarian, they're this mythologized other representative of a subversive cultural order that cannot be allowed to exist in the Greek world. But they are also representative of historical groups that the Greeks were probably aware of and anxious about. Yes. And in this story, the Amazons are representative of these writers' cultural anxieties about women, probably, because they hate them. um, And they put that in their writing. So thanks, authors of the story, for uh, not examining your own misogyny. Yeah, obviously, if women have control over their own reproduction, they will kill all the men. Oh my god, that is what this story is saying. Jesus. I just kind of did want to talk about the professor in this episode. Yes, that my second talking point is the Academy TM. The Academy TM, which, fun fact, they use... So, in this episode, this is the only episode where I think I, like, explicitly, explicitly recognize buildings that we both have been in. Yes. Um, they actually use two buildings at UBC. One building they actually use to represent a university, which I think is like maybe one of the physics buildings or whatever. It looks like old and castly. But the other building is a building with which we are intimately familiar. And yes. that is the Buchanan buildings at UBC. They are the home of the classics department. And you know what they use it as? They use it as the morgue, which I think is hilarious. Yeah, very um, appropriate. I recognize it from the door handles. That is how much time I've spent in this stupid fucking <laughs> I know. Building. You sent me a text saying that, and I had to scroll back because I hadn't been paying that much attention. Yeah. And I was like, oh my god, it is. Yep. It's the, it's the, there's these very specific, like, door handles on the doors to exit the building. And I'm like, it's Buchanan. I could tell, home. I could actually tell exactly where they were standing oh. when we got a wide shot. I was like, oh my god. But yes, there is a visit to a university in this. Now, I'll say one other thing before we really get into, like, The Professor, which (laughs) is, so this episode is nominally set in Seattle. Oh, I missed that. Yeah, and the University of Washington, which is in Seattle, has a classics department. And I'm pointing this out because the professor that they go to see, because Bobby, they're, they're... Bobby, who is their kind of friend and mentor, and usually their, like, research guy, is dead at present in the show, and so they need to find some other source for information. And so they go to this professor at the university, and he is an anthropology professor. Yes. Who, like, specializes in, like, ancient something. I don't know. symbols or whatever. Yeah, he's, like, a symbology guy, I guess, but, like... I mean, look, I'm not an anthropologist. I am not in an anthropology department. So I don't, maybe there are people who do this in anthropology departments. But like, if you, I'm pretty sure if you like Googled ancient symbology or ancient religion and you were looking for a professor who was an expert in those things, you would end up in the classics department. Well, so the reason they're finding this guy in the first place is worth mentioning is that because they the all the, these like men who have been murdered by the Amazons have this symbol carved on their hand and they're like right. what is this symbol? The symbol by that they use is, is some random oh, it's shit nonsense. that they made up. Yeah. It's not Greek at all. No. Um but just the fact that they take this symbol to this guy and he's like hm, 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 this is ancient Greek and it's like nobody in the anthropology department does ancient Greek. Is this a gripe that it's only annoying to us? 
absolutely, but we're still going to complain about it. Oh, absolutely. There's no way that they would walk into an anthropology department and find an ancient Mediterranean archaeologist. Like, yeah. Which is I, a person who would be familiar with ancient Greek symbology. Sy- symbology. Yeah. And iconography. Um, yeah. Like, maybe if you're also a religious person, but you'd end up in the classics department. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's where you want to go. And, like, also that he does, in fact, read ancient Greek apparently fluently on the spot without a dictionary or any time to decipher the handwriting. They bring him this, like, page later because I think it was Sam was like, besides, this page is in Greek. Nobody reads Greek. (laughs) No, I think it's Dean, actually. And Sam, like, mutters in reply, except Greeks. And I was like, Modern Greek looks, sounds, and reads nothing like ancient Greek. So I think this is is something that is not really very well understood unless you, like, are either a Greek person or somebody who knows a lot about classics. But, like, modern Greek and ancient Greek are not the same language. (laughs) They are very distinctly very different. They are, you know, two to three thousand years apart, right? Like, this is like saying that Latin is the same as modern French. Like simply not the case yeah and Um, like it would be way easier to walk onto the campus of uw seattle and find somebody who can read classical greek than to find somebody who can decipher ancient esoteric symbology yes also the idea that you can just like look at some ancient greek and just read it I don't think I know even language scholars, unless they're reading a text that is pretty well known. Oh, you no. can't do that. Like you have to have no. a dictionary with you. You'd have to spend time on it if it is an unknown text. Like even scholars who are really, really good at their jobs, like cannot just sit down and just read ancient Greek the way you would read a modern language. This is the thing about ancient Greek is like not only we don't have that much of it, so the corpus of of vocabulary is relatively small, even compared to Latin. And you can know the core vocabulary, like you could know 60% of the words that we have in ancient Greek if you know, like, I don't know, a couple hundred words or a couple thousand words. Like you actually don't, I can't remember what the exact statistics Mm -hmm. are. But even knowing that in every text, there are going to be some words that you've probably never seen before, especially if it's a text that like you aren't familiar with. And especially if it's a text that's about a topic that you're not familiar with. Yeah. And also ancient Greek is extremely dialectical. There are a lot of weird like morphology changes depending on the period and the location in which a given document was written. Yeah. There are a lot of specific, like, abbreviations that get used for things and, like, shorthand and stuff that gets used. And, last but not least, they present him with, like, a leaf out of a book, and I have to assume that it was handwritten. And Greek handwriting, like, this, like, script? Fucking garbage. (laughs) So hard to read. Well, same thing with Latin script. It's These are not easy things to read. Like, usually you're used to seeing Greek on, like, inscriptions, which 
Epigraphy is its own hellscape, but usually the letters are fairly, the letters themselves are fairly well defined. Handwriting, who fucking knows? Yeah. Literally, who knows? Who I knows have, what it says? Not me. I took a course. So it seemed to me that this was actually, even though they were trying to sell this page as like, oh, this is like, it's like a leaf out of a book, mm-hmm. which means, of course, it must have been transcribed like a fuck ton of times because if yeah. it was actually from antiquity, it would have been at best written on papyrus. Yeah. And like, lucky if it's even that so it's been transcribed a bunch of times there's probably scribal errors that have piled up that's even its own (laughs) its own other issue and like corrections and all this other shit but like i took a papyrology course last year when i was in my master's uh because it was interesting and like we would have to try to like read like bits from papyrus and like Honestly, I was lucky if I could decipher what letter I was looking at most of the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's extremely hard. Yeah. It takes hours to read even a couple of lines of, like, script, like, hand script, yeah. manuscript in in Greece. So to sort of imagine how difficult this is, Latin handwriting is incredibly difficult to read, read and the Latin alphabet for the most part, uses the same letters as we do. Like, there's a few letters that they don't have. But, like, it's the same alphabet that English uses, and yet Latin handwriting is hard to decipher. So imagine doing that with a completely different script. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's it's and a I nightmare. Mean, look, if this page is out of a medieval manuscript that was transcribed by a monk, it's actually probably a much easier hand to read than, like, a, like a papyrus script hand. But... They're still hard to read. They're often riddled with errors. Sometimes there's big passages scratched out or things like added in the margins or in the like interline space when because somebody's forgotten something, whatever. Like there's all kinds of errors in these manuscripts. So all this to say this guy taking like 10 minutes to look at this piece of fucking writing that they hand him and then he's like, oh, it's about the Amazons and then like spills out a bunch of lore. Bullshit. Bullshit. Yeah. And also, I, a lot of the interpretations in Supernatural really depend on there being one myth that tells them the truth of what's going on, which is never the case for classical mythology. Oh my God. There's like usually 500 different tellings that are all different from one another. Yeah. They're like, oh, well, it says that the Amazons like have to kill their fathers as a rite of passage. And it's like, okay, cool. One person says that, but I'm sure you can find at least two other sources that tell you some other thing. Yes. But um, that just happens to be right the first time? What the fuck? No way. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, the writers of this episode were like, we need a monster of the week. Let's do the Amazons and just like pile a bunch of their own, like not even interpretation, because that would assume that they had looked at source material. They're like the Amazons. Hmm. I kind of have heard of those. Let's just like make something up about it. Yeah. It's like they just needed... They didn't want to make up their own monster, so they're piling on some, like, weird lore onto some sort of, like, pre-existing monster, the lore of which has little to do with the historical traditions about the Amazons. All right, I think that... I have one more thing to say about this episode, and this is to kind of come back to something that we said earlier about shooting the teenage girl in the chest. So at the end of the episode, the girl, Dean's, like, daughter that he fathered, who has been alive for, like, two days, comes to him and is like, 
she makes this plea. She's like, oh, I've been, you know, I've only been alive for two days. They keep telling, you know, they keep telling me that I have to, like, accept pain so that I can inflict it. It's really horrible. You're my father. Please, like, get me out. And he kind of, he knows that she is, quote unquote, a monster, but he's kind of, like, sympathetic. And then Sam comes in the door and she, like, you know, takes takes the mask off and is like, I almost had him, whatever. And Dean's like, I don't know, Sammy. And then Sam shoots her in the chest. Stone cold. Yep. Mm-hmm. And which, is, which is particularly jarring because Sam is, like, supposed to be this sort of, like, emotional brother, which I get yeah. is the point, but they are also defending child murder here. That is how this is framed, is that the child murder is totally okay and justified. Yeah, well, and and they kind of, it's kind of juxtaposed against something that happened, I guess, earlier in the season where Sam, this girl that Sam, she's like a monster and he like wanted to let her go because she was only killing to protect her child and Dean like finds her and kills her because she's a monster and what they do is kill monsters they can't like let people go i guess i don't know i don't know what happened in that episode really but like that's more or less the situation and so sam is like this is what happened with amy that other girl i'm just doing in this situation what you did with amy basically she's a monster she had to die no two ways Mm -hmm. about it and i just i'm just gonna like put this out there that You know, American television is very gung-ho about shooting people in the chest for because they are perceived as inherent threats because of their birth. Yes, because they are um, in some way not the same as you. Because they are, shall we say, of a different race. Yep. We, We are totally okay in the U.S., apparently, with uh, allowing white men with guns and paramilitary training to just shoot people. A cab is what I'm saying. <laughs> I don't think we need to go into it in any well, more detail by, than that. Well, and by A cab, Sam and Dean are cops. Sam in, and Dean are cops. In conclusion, <laughs> the Winchesters are cops. Sorry to ruin Supernatural for you, except, like, not really. Yeah. I'm not sorry. Fuck cops. <laughs> Let's move on. Let's move on to a, well, what I think is a slightly better episode. What you still I hate. think it is a slightly better episode, <laughs> but that's not saying much, given what a pile uh, of deeply offensive hot garbage the last one was. Y- yes, this is true. I will say, to start off, this did have some really good comedic moments. There is a moment where Sam and Dean are, like, discussing about how, like, this guy who is the the titan who is at this point like dead on like a fucking morgue table they're like like oh like this guy clearly there's nothing going on here this dead body or this like barely alive guy just got dragged off by a bear nothing is happening and in the background you see this guy like waking up and like getting off the morgue table and it was actually like a pretty i laughed i did laugh at that the other thing i laughed at uh, was at I, I believe at one point when Sam is explaining who the Titan Prometheus is, he says that Prometheus Ocean's 11 Mount Olympus, which 
is an yeah. excellent description of what Prometheus did. I yes. think that's perfectly though, accurate. Though I will say that that line and several others in this episode very much reminded me that 80% of the humor in this show is references to other better media. <laughs> you are not incorrect. I did that. pull out a couple of lines from this, though, mm-hmm. that I enjoyed. One of them was towards the beginning of the episode, we get like Sam, they're talking about their friend Kevin, who's like doing some profit shit for them. I don't know. And he's like trying to translate a book for them, I guess. Mm-hmm. And at one point Sam says, translating an ancient language with zero help might be more difficult than I think. I, you ha- I, have the, I have that exact line in my notes as <laughs> yeah. well. And it's like, hmm, no shit, Sherlock. And then also at one point, this one just like made me chuckle when they're sitting around waiting for Prometheus to like revive for the second or third time. They're just, like, sitting on the bed observing his body, and Dean mutters, I feel like I'm sitting Shiva. I was gonna ask you about that. (laughs) And Sam is like, Dean, that's... Never mind. Which is, like, Sam is correct. That's not really what sitting Shiva is. Okay, what is sitting Shiva? Because I I don't know. Sitting Shiva is part of the Jewish mourning ritual where after somebody's death, the loved ones of that person are supposed to just kind of sit in their home and be in mourning. You're not supposed to... And you're not supposed to, like, do anything during that period. You're not supposed to bathe. You're not supposed to cook for yourself. You're not supposed to, like, go out or do Mm -hmm. anything. You're just supposed to sit and sort of be in your grief for... I think it's a couple of days. I fucking... I've never had to do this, fortunately. And it's traditional for other members of the community to come and visit and to bring you food and to, like, keep keep your house tidy and sort of do service for you while you are in mourning so that you can just sit. You don't do it with the corpse (laughs) present, to be clear. No unrefrigerated corpses in people's houses. I feel like maybe at some point in history that might actually have been the case and that might be where it came from. But like, you see that with a lot of burial traditions that people's corpses did just used to sit in houses for a few days. Yeah, but that's not something I actually know off the top of my head. So suffice to say, nowadays we don't do it with the corpse present. But it was kind of funny. Yeah. I'll say this about this episode. I find it deeply annoying that all of the, like, problem solving and puzzling out and research happens completely off screen. Like, Sam goes off screen for a while and Mm -hmm. then comes back and is like, it's Prometheus. Yes. However, in the moments that we do see them doing research, all of their research is done on, like, some bad website that some random guy made in 2007. And, like, if they did this in my fucking undergrad class, fail. All of their research that they do in this show is just automatic fail for how bad their sources are. (laughs) I mean, yeah. Also, obviously, what they're looking at, like, just from, like, the meta perspective, obviously, what they're looking at are not real websites. These are graphics that were made by the team for them to look at on a screen. But the idea that, like, they're like, "Mm, yes, this random website that we found definitely tells us the truth about what's going on. They just do that all the time. I mean, I don't know, man. Like, if you were doing research into, like, the quote-unquote real shit of, like, monsters that actually exist, that's not going to be the shit that's on Wikipedia. It's going to be the shit that's on some, like, crackpot fucking Monster Hunter's secret webpage on the dark web. But it doesn't even look like that. It looks like (laughs) Theoi.com. I mean, yes. (laughs) 
right? Like, these are just, like, some guy set up, like, a a myth website for fun or whatever. Like, that's what these websites look like. Yeah. Anyway, suffice to say, none of the research in this episode happens on screen. It all happens off screen while Dean and Prometheus are, like, talking to Prometheus's girlfriend and their son. Yeah, so Prometheus, like, kind of... So Prometheus, like, loses his memory and then, like, literally shacks up with this girl. They're in a shack on a mountain and she gets pregnant, but he, like, doesn't know. And so she just, like, shows up out of nowhere when while Prometheus is, like, coming back to life. And he's like, oh, here's this, like, eight-year-old child that is your son. And also he has your same curse. Of... To die every day, yeah, and then come back to life. It's very fucked up. And, like, I need to be clear. Prometheus in the myth does not die every day. No, no. He's immortal. That is the point of the punishment. The, the eagle comes and pecks out his liver and eats it, and he just has to suffer the agony of that happening over and over again without the release of death. You know, where whereas here... He dies, and then we see the eagle peck out his liver. Yeah, and then there's, the eagle shows up and pecks out his liver. There's still an eagle pecking out his liver, but he's just already dead. Like, what's... The, what's the point? I don't know what they were they were going with there. Um, yeah. They're like, ooh, we need to reference the source material. And it's like, yeah, and either also, stick to your guns or don't, guys. And also, one of the times that he dies, the eagle doesn't show up to peck out his liver. Yeah. Because he's inside the entire time. No. So it's like, okay, well... I don't know, man. What is the thing? It's very clear that the writers didn't don't think very much about this stuff. And... Other things that they don't think much about include literally every other thing they had to say in this episode about Greek mythology or history of any kind. I'm just going to go down my list of, like, shit that got said in this episode that made me furious. (laughs) Okay, number one. Sam pops up with all of his, like, research and is like, oh, it must be the goddess Artemis She's, and I quote, she's been known to carry around weapons like that dagger. Bro, no, she fucking isn't. She's known for carrying around a bow. Yeah, I... This literally came from nowhere and makes no sense. I even looked this up. Uh Uh-huh. Hunters and hunting iconography in Greek art and mythology are featured with bows, spears, nets, and other, like, long-range weapons that mm-hmm. you would actually be able to use for hunting. I'm sure hunters carried and used knives just for, like, practical reasons. But, like, hunting knives were not remotely part of the iconography. We don't, like, get them anywhere. And Artemis certainly was not associated with daggers or knives. Number two, when they're talking about the kid... Sam says, oh, that makes sense that this, like, kicked in when he was seven. And I quote, age seven marks one of the first Greek rites of manhood. Take a wild guess as to whether this is remotely accurate. Oh, man. No, it's not. Nope. There's no reason why that would be accurate. I Um, could not find a single source for this. Listen, childhood studies, like, child studies and and stuff about, like, childhood in the ancient world, it's it's kind of its own subfield because there aren't a lot of sources on this stuff and it can be really hard to research about children. Mm-hmm. But as far as I could find anywhere, this is not a thing. 
they might have picked up some sources about the either the Anthesteria, the Athenian festival, the Anthesteria, which one of the days of the Anthesteria involves children like getting to have their first sip of wine and them kind of being celebrated in that way, like getting to to begin to participate in adult society in that way. But it's children significantly younger than seven mm. get to have their like first sip of wine. It's like age three or something oh, like that. Okay. Yeah. The other thing is that they might have been looking at stuff about the Apaturia, which was a regional festival where boys were initiated into their freytry, which was kind of their like paternal clan, essentially. But again, boys were initiated into their freytry at the first Apaturia to happen after their birth. So they were usually younger than a year. Yeah, it, I mean, it's also worth noting that, like, different Greek city-states were culturally different, yeah. had different, you know, festivals and, like, rites of passage that they may have celebrated. Also, rites of passage are usually, like, around puberty. Like, yeah. when you're talking about stuff about transitioning into adulthood, it usually has to do with being able to take on, like, adult roles. Yeah, rites of manhood were, like, shit that you did in your late when you were finished your education. Yeah. The only thing that I was like, maybe, the other thing that I was like, maybe they were using some of, some inspiration from this was there is a reference in Lysistrata or Lysistrata, depending on your choice of pronunciation. Lysistrata. Just gotta put that out there. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> that... There's a woman who talks about, at age seven, going to Browron, which there was a cult center to Artemis at a place called Browron where girls at age seven would go, or kind of between five and ten years old, would go and begin participating in these religious rituals that were part of the journey towards womanhood. And that that age was kind of the first step for girls to become women. But, like... That's girls. Yes. However, it is worth noting that the that the celebrations were inc incredibly cute. The girls would dress up like little bears and yes. dance. Um, yeah. It's extremely adorable. Incredibly cute. Uh, just, just you just really needed to know that if you didn't yeah. know that. Um, that. Yeah. This was cute. Yeah, I think you're giving the authors, you're putting way more thought into this than I think the showrunners did. I mean, the show yeah. Runners, the showrunners were like, quick, we need a plot explanation. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I I'm just saying. what happened. <laughs> um, but thank you for the lovely history. You know, I just was like, maybe they were thinking of something, but those were the only remotely close things I could find. And honestly, I don't think it's any of those. I think they were making shit up. Yes, I agree. <laughs> So since I've mentioned the cult of Artemis and Brauron, it seems let's like take a break from my exceptionally long list of gripes about this episode to talk about Artemis. Um, they made her straight. Yes, which is completely unacceptable. Artemis is a lesbian. Like, like yeah. canon okay, canonically she's not a lesbian, but like she's a lesbian. She canonically she is like a sworn virgin. Yes. And she spends all of her time running around in the woods with her like squad of nymphs. Yes. 
There's no actual textual evidence to suggest that she was fucking any of the members of her squad of nymphs. However, but like, there's no evidence to say that there wasn't because virginity yeah. only has to do with penises. According to men. Yeah. Yeah. So. And for that reason, men had no interest in recording sexuality that happened between people without penises. Yeah. Which, in antiquity, all people without penises were women. Because that was how they thought about gender. (laughs) Well, not entirely. In Greece. Yeah, you could say in Greece. In Greece, gender was incredibly tied to sex. (laughs) And it was also quite tied to sexuality. Yes. And they didn't care about women, and they didn't care about women's sexuality, except for to the degree to which they needed to control it so that they could control reproduction. So, yeah, we have no textual evidence to suggest that Artemis was a lesbian in the classical Sappho sense. But she was. Yeah, Artemis has big lesbian energy. And the fact that you would take Artemis and make her heterosexual for plot reasons is just... Yeah, they literally mm. just were like, hmm, we need a reason for Artemis to want to rescue Prometheus. Let's decide that they were fucking. But it's also like, there's no reason this needs to be Artemis. Yeah. Like, this is just, they just, they had, they needed to have a random female goddess who was, because this is 20-whatever, 2013, they weren't going to have this be homosexual, let's be honest here. Yeah. Um, They needed to have a random female goddess have some sort of reason to, like, rescue Prometheus. Yeah. And they're like, let's go with Artemis. And it's just like, really, guys? And if they they make it Artemis, they can have this, the, like, weird, like, uh, like, weird patriarchal authority thing with Zeus. I mean, they also could have done it if it was Athena, but I think Athena is even more notoriously a virgin. All of the goddesses are either married or notoriously a virgin. Aside from, well, I mean, Aphrodite's married, but she sleeps around because yeah. she's the goddess of having sexy times. So yes, she sure that's is. Just, that's just her vibe. I just, they dealt with Artemis so badly. They dealt with everything about this so badly, but like, they made her straight, they made her really white. Everyone in this is really white. Yeah. We didn't say that about the Amazons in the last episode either, but they're all really white, too. Yes, every woman is really white, really sort of, like, conventionally attractive. Yeah, it's a lot of... Basically, all of these episodes involve a lot of conventionally attractive white women who are super murdery. So it's, like, kind of sexy, you know? Like, that's the vibe they're giving off, is, like, sexy murderous... But here, of course, the fun misogyny is that, oh, no, she's a woman, so she has feelings, so she doesn't do a murder. Yeah. Except then she does, because she shoots Zeus. Well, no, she doesn't do the, she doesn't do a child murder. She does not, right? you know, or she, she stops her father from, her father Zeus from murdering Prometheus's child, because she cares about Prometheus. I just... I'm still, God, yeah, and they try to make it this whole, like, Zeus is like, oh, I am the patriarch, and she's like, I'm a strong, independent young woman, and you don't control me, daddy, and then she fucking shoots him in the chest. (laughs) Worth noting that she also shoots Prometheus. So what happens is, like, Zeus, she tries to shoot Zeus, and then Zeus, like, 
jerks Prometheus in front of him, so she actually shoots Prometheus, and I guess it's supposed to be tragic. If yeah. this was written in a way that at all grabbed my emotions, I guess it would have been tragic, but it was just like, okay, yeah. well. And then Prometheus, like, grabs the arrow and shoves it through his own chest into Zeus's. Also, can we point out, like, why are these gods so easy to kill? Yeah, what the fuck? Like, literally, so the idea is that, oh, like, the they're being shot with Artemis's arrow, so they're officially forever dead now, and it's like, how have they survived for thousands of years if a godly weapon could just nerf them so easily? Yeah. Like, the point of the gods in Greek mythology is that they are immortal. Yeah. It's but, extremely bad. But again, monster of the week. We gotta kill the monster. So. And Zeus is the monster. Yes. Which, like, okay, yeah, Zeus is a bad guy, but he's not, like, actively menacing in the way that he gets portrayed in this. He's extremely vengeful and, like, retributive, but he's not, like, oh, I am so evil and bad and I hate all of humanity so much that fuck you forever and also I'm gonna let this child be have this horrible curse forever and ever just because I'm bad, apparently. This is the thing is like, okay, yes. Zeus is not super concerned with consent and he's not concerned with people's feelings about, like, the balance of, like, the universe. But he also is often portrayed as kind of acting to keep that balance in place. That, like, he does the things that he does, yes, out of retribution a lot of the time, but never disproportionate to, like, the crime. And even when, like, even when it seems disproportionate, it's in line with, like, often there's an end to the punishment. Prometheus is a great example of this. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, first of all, Prometheus does more than just steal fire from the gods. There's this whole episode where Prometheus tricks Zeus and the other gods into accepting as burnt offerings from mortals the, like, skin and bones and and offal of cattle and other animals that are offered so that humans can keep the good meat for themselves. Mm-hmm. Which kind of pisses Zeus off, and then when Zeus is like, fuck you humans... Prometheus steals the fire, and so Zeus sentences him to be on the mountain. But it is clear in the myth that eventually Heracles will come along and take Prometheus down off the mountain with Zeus's consent. Like, there is a finite, it's a finite punishment in response to a specific offense. Yeah. Like, do I think that Zeus is in the right in this one? No, obviously not. Zeus fucking sucks. But, like, He's not pointlessly cruel. Well, <laughs> at least in this had... at least in this episode. Yeah, no. Him it... taking this out on this random kid is completely random. Yes, no it is because he's like I want to make you suffer Prometheus even more cuz I hate you. And yeah, that's not really the vibe of the myth. Yeah, it like... is about a specific action, not like this like deep overwhelming hatred for Prometheus. Yeah, like Torturing somebody's children to get at them is, like, not completely unheard of in classical mythology, but usually it's very specifically, 
I am going to kill your children in order to trick you into cannibalizing them, or I am just going to kill your children to deprive you of heirs. Yeah, Zeus doesn't really go around killing other people's children for fun. And in fact, he definitely doesn't go around just torturing children indefinitely. Yeah, no. Nobody goes around torturing children indefinitely for their parents' crimes in Greek mythology. People get tortured indefinitely for their own crimes. Yes, yes. Or they, well, they do get tortured for their parents' crimes, but, like, not explicitly by, like, Zeus. It's a thing that mortals do to each other sometimes, but it's also always framed as a wicked act that ultimately results in divine punishment and, like, generates miasma, which is the, like, sort of curse of being badness that people get. Yes. The gods punish mortals all the time for doing shit, Mm -hmm. but not like this. Yeah. Do you have anything else to say about Remember the Titans or can we move on to fan fiction? I have a couple of petty gripes. Okay. One of them is the ancient Greek hunter Dracopoulos or however the fuck they pronounce it in the show. Dracopoulos is just a common Greek surname. It doesn't mean dragon penis. Oh, see, I heard it as Dracopolis. I heard that as an iota. That's also what I heard it as, and I was like, that means Dragon City, and I looked it up, and apparently it is, it's spelled D-R-A-K-O-P-O-U-L-O-S. Poulos. Poulos. Like, and it's, yeah, it's a common Greek surname. I think it means more like son of the dragon or something like that, according to the wiki. I honestly didn't look very far into this one, because it doesn't mean dragon penis, and he is not a real Greek figure. Uh, yeah. The gods can't be killed with a piece of wood from a tree struck by lightning. The gods can't be killed at all. There are more people than just Greek people who worship the Hellenic pantheon. They are not called Greek pagans. They are usually referred to as Hellenic polytheists or Hellenic neo-pagans. Yes. Well, they're, they're, so fun fact, there are actually Hellenic neo-pagans who are specifically Greek people and do worship the Greek gods because they are Greek yes. in their Greek heritage, but then there are also people who in modern day worship the Greek gods regardless of their heritage. Yes. It's just the show kind of implies that these like Greek, this like Greek cemetery that they go yeah. to, to fucking dig up somebody's body is all Greek people who are worshipping their ancestral gods. And it's like, no, that's not the case. Yeah, no, most, most Greek people are Orthodox Christian. Yep. And then one last thing. So at one point, when Sam is like, oh, Artemis, you have the hots for Prometheus, but you wanted to keep it quiet. You didn't tell any ab- anybody about it. Not a whisper to, and I quote, Homer, Hesiod, or Herodotus. He's just like naming poets. Yes. I mean, Herodotus isn't a poet. He yeah. wrote in prose. He's a historian. Um, but um, it was really funny because like, Actually, Sam, you were correct on one of those counts. Hesiod is, in fact, the source for the Prometheus myth that we have. He's the earliest source (laughs) for the Prometheus myth. We have a version of the Prometheus myth or myths regarding Prometheus in both the Theogony and Works and Days. Friggin' Works and Days. Fuck Works and Days. Uh, So for everybody who doesn't know, Works and Days is about farming. Yeah, we talked about it a little bit in our Hades Town yes. episode because we were talking about oh, uh, yes. epic poetic farming manuals. Yes, um, of which this is one of them. And uh, if I recall correctly, the Prometheus story we get in this one may not actually be the main Prometheus story, but it's the one about Pandora. 
Yes, yes it uh, is. With Prometheus and Epimetheus, which is like, we just are back on that misogyny thing again. Oh, yeah. Um, it is worth worth noting, actually, that pro Prometheus means forethought. Yeah. Um, and Epimetheus means afterthought. Yeah. Um, I.e. Epimetheus is not the brightest light bulb, yeah. whereas Prometheus is particularly intelligent. Yes. Um, not that you would get that Prometheus is particularly intelligent from this story. Nope. And yeah, so we have Hesiod that tells the story, and we have in Hesiod the idea that the curse is going to be lifted by Heracles' rescue efforts. There is no mention of Prometheus, or at least no substantial mention of Prometheus in Homer or Herodotus. Those are just random names. We're just picking the H names that people yep. might recognize. Mm-hmm. And then the next source that we have that is a major source for Prometheus is Prometheus Bound, which is a tragedy. Yes. It is a tragedy that is possibly by Aeschylus. <laughs> Scholars debate about this. I, My sense is that the scholarly community has largely settled on the, like, this probably isn't actually by Aeschylus, but we have no idea who it is yeah, by, so we yeah. might as well just say it's Aeschylus kind of side of things. Mm-hmm. And it tells the story of Prometheus getting chained up on the mountain and him being like, fuck you, Zeus. He has an encounter with Io, who is a princess who Zeus has seduced, and she's now being harassed by Hera. She gets turned into a cow for a while. It's kind of a whole thing. (laughs) And he's kind of like, you and I are both victims of Zeus's bullshit, but it'll be fine for the both of us. He kind of, he like kind of tells her this because she is ultimately like the foremother of, among other people, Heracles, who is the one who ultimately rescues him. However, it's kind of tragic. I've always found this particular story very tragic because it's like, oh, I owe your life sucks and it will never not suck, but you will bear children who eventually will do, who will eventually bear other children who will eventually do great things. And it's like, this is not comforting. (laughs) Yeah, no, her her story really sucks. I'll be honest, I didn't... I haven't actually read the Prometheus Bound. I'm only passingly familiar with what's in it, but from what I understand, it's a pretty interesting play, and there's, like, a lot going on. But, of course, we're not going to mention Aeschylus in this episode, and we're not going to mention that Prometheus' curse has theoretically already been lifted, and we're just not going to mention anything. No. Okay. It's a bad fucking episode. Yes. Shall we proceed to fan fiction? <laughs> yes. Fan fiction, my favorite thing. Uh, it, 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 listener, it truly is Julia's favorite thing. <laughs> I devote a lot of time and energy to the production and consumption of fan fiction these days. Yep. Not um, for Supernatural, though. No, not for Supernatural. Um, are there AO3 tabs open every time I come to Julia's house on her computer? Maybe. Uh, I'll let you figure that out. <laughs> you don't need to put me on blast in our podcast. Thank you. I mean, you're editing it. Do you want to summarize fan fiction for us? So, Sam and Dean show up at a high school to try and solve the disappearance of a drama teacher, and then they discover that the students are putting on a musical based on a book about their life. They then discover that the disappearance is caused by the muse Calliope, who plans on eating the playwright after the premiere, because I guess she tastes good. Uh, because she will have, like, produced all of this creative energy or whatever. This is an episode that will not make a lot of sense if you don't know anything about Supernatural. Yeah, (laughs) we'll try not to get too into the, like, meta plot, but I'll say this. So within Supernatural, 
It's canonical. I think it comes up in season six or season seven. They meet this guy, Chuck, who is like a prophet, they think. Mm -hmm. Spoilers, turns out he's God. Yeah, he's in fact God. Like God, God. Yeah. Big Sky Daddy God. Big Sky Daddy. Christian God. And he's like a recluse and he's kind of crazy. And he's been nominally having visions about their lives and he's been writing these books. And so he writes this series of books that chronicle their lives and adventures up to Swan Song, which is the last episode of season five. So the supernatural books within the series chronicle all of the events of the first five seasons of Supernatural, the show. And these are published works that actually exist within the world of Supernatural. People know about them. There's another episode where they meet two guys who are, like, impersonating them or something like that. They're, like, cosplayers. Oh, I don't remember this. Yeah, it's, like, um, a whole thing. But, I can't. <laughs> but Supernatural likes to get really meta on occasion, and they also like to reference their own fans a lot, which is essentially what this is doing. Yeah. Let's talk about the classical material first and just get it out of the way. Uh. We have some thoughts on this actual episode as well, but let's talk about the classical stuff. So Calliope or Calliope um, is the muse of epic poetry. Mm -hmm. And she is the the enemy. She's the, the monster of the week in this episode. The conceit is that she makes it, she facilitates like great works of art and then consumes the authors once their visions are realized. So yeah. This all culminates in Dean wrestling a shittily animated scarecrow on stage <laughs> while a girl sings about, like, one single manly tear. And then the teenage girl stabs the monster and then Calliope, like, explodes into purple goo and it's deeply anticlimactic. Yes, it is deeply anticlimactic. But the point of this episode is not really the monster. They just, like, needed a monster no. to go with their plot about fan fiction. Yeah, this is the thing is like this is very very thin as far as like anything that they were doing with Calliope. I d I don't even think this thing that they pull out that's like oh she's associated with this flower. I think it's like a burbage or something like that. Like I don't think that's actually a thing. No. At least not that I'm they, aware they of. They just need some way. They need a plot reason to figure out this is Calliope and then Sam, once again, spends, like, two minutes on Google and is like, oh, well, this flower was found at the scene of the crime, and this flower is associated with uh, Calliope, so it must be her. Yep, and uh, they picked her specifically, as opposed to some other muse, so that they could have her ta say, and I quote, supernatural has everything, life, oh. death, Resurrection, redemption, and above all, family. It isn't some piece of meandering dreck. It's epic. I would like to say, uh, for the record, Supernatural is in fact meandering dreck. That is oh, exactly what it is. The degree to which that line was a horrible cell phone. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like you guys are trying to say that your show doesn't suck, but this is season 10 
of yeah. a drama that has 23 episodes and per like, season. Hilariously, one of the first things that happens in the episode is that Dean is like, your second half where you change the ending of Swan Song is bad. Here's what actually happened. <laughs> and he lays out for her the plot of seasons 6 through 10 thus far. And she's like, that's stupid bullshit. Like, she's right. Yes. Yeah, she is correct. Um, her plot apparently involved aliens and tentacles. We don't get to see this. Yeah. Um, but... This is the thing is, like, this is the one... That is, like, the one thing in this episode that I was like, that's kind of a nasty dig at fandom and transformative works. Oh, yeah. Basically, everything else in this was like, okay, this is, like, more appreciative than shitty, mm-hmm. but... That and the somewhat mocking tone they take towards queen, like slash shippers yeah. in the fandom, those two things are somewhat derogatory towards fandom. Even if they're meant to be kind of lightheartedly joking, it's a little nasty in my opinion. Yeah, and it's Supernatural has always had a very sort of mixed relationship with their fans in this yeah. sense. Like people have said things about specifically like queer romance and you know. There's, yeah, this this is another, you know what, this episode is another great example of them, like, queer baiting the hell out of people, and then making fun of people who think something might be gay, which also is a thing that happens in Sherlock. Yep. Yep. They go on this whole thing about, like, the actresses who play Cass and Dean in this, like, school musical called Supernatural are, like, hugging, and they're, like, being all coupley, and... Dean's like, what the fuck's going on over there? Uh-huh. And she's like, oh, the actresses are in a relationship IRL. But don't worry, we get into we get into the the nature of the Destiel relationship in Act Two. It's like, yeah, that is in fact the actual portmanteau that gets used as the ship name. Yes. And then Sam like makes a joke later about how it's a bad portmanteau. Yeah, but then like they they basically sort of be like, oh, like, but it's just subtext. Yeah. And it's like, okay, guys, let's just, like, hammer in the queer baiting here. Supernatural, Supernatural and Sherlock, again, both these, like, media of similar eras were absolutely terrible for queer baiting. Yeah. They would queer bait the shit out of people, and then the showrunners and also the 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 actual material in the show would make fun of people for thinking something was gay despite the fact that you know they they wasn't just you know there was like very obvious queer subtext that was clearly written in as like fan service yeah also even some of the stuff that they seem not to have like intended as queer subtext really like i don't know what the fuck author what the fuck writer in the supernatural writers room was like you know it would be a banger introductory line for this angel character who we're gonna kill off in three episodes I gripped you tight and raised you from perdition <laughs> they were gonna kill Cass off immediately oh, that yeah. was the original yeah. plan yeah. and then they had that be his first fucking line guys what the fuck are you thinking I, I really it's, don't know this show is so off the wall fucking insane it is so hard to describe to anybody who did not experience it. Yeah, um, it is also worth noting that in the immortal words of Sarah Zed, the end of this show was both gay and homophobic. Oh, 100%. <laughs> we don't need to get into the events of November 5th, 2020, <laughs> but like, suffice to say, 
all of us took a trip to super mega turbo hell. <laughs> the, the, the long and short of it is that Castiel gets sent to super mega turbo hell for being gay for Dean. Yep. And then he never shows up again. And yep. there's no resolution. And yep. that's it. Yep. It just... They really went all the way to the end of this show's life doing everything they could to disappoint their whole fan base as aggressively as they possibly could. Yes. And, like, this episode shows so clearly that they knew what people wanted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They knew what people found fun. Some fucking writer was reading shit on fanfiction.net. They knew about the goddamn space AUs and the fucking tentacle porn. And they still wrote the ending for the show that they wrote. Like, yeah. I am no longer invested in Supernatural. I haven't been invested in Supernatural in almost 10 years. Thank God for that. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, I feel for everyone who was a fan or who, you know, kind of did a rewatch as the show was coming back, coming towards its finale. I know one or mm-hmm. two people who, like, decided to try to catch up to, like, watch the end because they loved it so much. And it was just garbage. Yeah, this episode also really shows that they really, like you kind of touched on earlier, they have this, the show writers seem to think that what they, their version of the story is infinitely better than anything that their teenage girl fans could come up with. Which, if you have spent any amount of time reading fanfiction, you know is not true. There are some incredibly talented fanfiction writers who write really good fiction, and who, in a lot of cases, manage to come up with stuff that's, like, better than what the show writers are doing for whatever reason. And also the fandom is just smart. Like, the yeah. fandom knows what's going on. Yeah. We mentioned Chuck and the fact that Chuck is God. He makes a cameo at the end of this episode because mm-hmm. they're, they're his books. And, like, I think it's worth noting that the fandom called that he was God way before that ever got revealed in the show. Yeah. And everyone lost their fucking minds over it, of course, when the reveal happened. But, like, we all knew because despite being teenage girls and also adult women, Mm -hmm. like, turns out women can think thoughts. Yes. Well, yeah, and here's the thing is there is something, there is obviously something inherently misogynistic about the way things that teenage girls do gets treated. And it's worth noting that, like, yeah, like, the writing staff for this show was, like, I think pretty well largely male. Yeah, um, not exclusively. Actually, but, one of the co-writers of Slice Girls was a woman. <laughs> which seems insane. Yeah. But yeah, like it's, there is kind of a bit of pandering in this episode to, well, like you guys have your version and we have our version. And they are eventually like nice to the fangirls. But you still can't ignore that they kind of treat the fangirls as like, over-invested in something and, like, really dramatic and that their ideas are not very good. It's, like, very, very dismissive. And that's kind of upsetting. And it's also really sad that you would choose to treat your fan base that way when it's like, okay, you're Matt, you're basically saying these girls are too obsessive about this thing that you're making, but they're the reason you've had 15 seasons. Yeah. Is, are these fans. So it's just really weird and gross to, like, treat people that way. They even have Calliope, like, they give Calliope a line about how the, like, second or third act or whatever it is with all the robots and shit that this girl has written is, like, horrible. Yeah. It's like when when you're having, when you're putting those words in 
who is nominally one of the literal muses who inspire all great literature, like the muse that gets invoked by Virgil at the beginning of the Aeneid, which is like generally agreed to be good or whatever. <laughs> by by all of history, like the Aeneid is an okay piece of literature, uh-huh. I guess. And having that muse be like, oh, this teenage girl's writing is fucking garbage. Like her ideas are like crazy it's like you have to understand that not only do you have authority as the creator of this show that these fans you're talking about care about like that you have an emotional authority but you are also giving that some that opinion narrative authority by putting it in the mouth of a literal goddess yep Mm mm-hmm it is also worth noting that, like, we see the characters, like, dressed up as Sam and Dean in, like, these very shitty costumes. Man, people, the cosplayers, you know, not that there isn't bad cosplay, but a lot of these teenage girls cosplaying did a really fucking good job with their cosplays. There yeah. was not there was not adequate appreciation of the quality of cosplay that was occurring. Though, to be fair, this was very accurate to every high school play I've ever seen or been in. (laughs) And it is worth saying, I did enjoy this episode. A lot of the meta stuff I found to be very funny. Yes. They do all this reference stuff that is really, that is, a lot of it is actually quite funny. If you were ever a fan of this show and if you watched, like, even the first couple of seasons, honestly, I would recommend watching this episode. I think it's kind of a fun blast from the past because it deals with a lot of the material and some, like, unresolved shit that they just left hanging from the first five seasons. Yeah. That little dig at the end about Adam. Yeah. <laughs> really good. But, like, and the music was pretty good. Like, yes. The singing was the, good. The music kind of slapped. Yeah. Not gonna lie. We were talking about this earlier, Allison and I. Like, it really sucks that Carry On My Wayward Son turned into, like, Tumblr cringe culture because as a song, it fucks. Yeah. And there's a good cover of it in this episode. Yes, but you can't, I cannot listen to it without thinking about Supernatural, so it's just ruined forever. Anyway, suffice to say, this particular episode, the classical reception angle was quite bad. Yes. But as an episode, it was fine. Yeah. Our conclusion here is that Supernatural never should have touched on classical reception. They should have stayed 10 feet away from it at all times, and yet here they are. Every time they tried to draw, well, okay, I mean, to be fair, every time they drew from any piece of, like, cultural mythology of any kind, they kind of butchered it. We don't need to talk about the whole Wendigo thing, because that's just fully racist. Yes. However, you know, when you're dealing with stuff like ghosts and werewolves and stuff that's sort of more, like, present has sort of more modern like folklore origins that's a little bit easier to deal with because you're not dealing with classical material like it's it's a more sort of yeah you're touching on really like interpretation and creation that in is in a lot of ways still happening yeah but classical mythology was created in a very specific context and like Not to be, like, stuff means things, but stuff means things. So you kind of have to be willing to do your due diligence on your research if you're going to actually do a good job with this stuff. And they clearly didn't and didn't care. And unfortunately, what they came out with was, like, 
not just really poorly informed, but ultimately more offensive than even if they'd used like a fairly bland, straightforward presentation of a quote unquote accurate version of some of these myths. Yeah, it's truly amazing how modern people think that they are not misogynistic and yet they manage to take material that is already misogynistic and somehow make it more yeah like it's so much worse than even the original stuff in like all three of these episodes yeah and it's like the greeks like invented hating women i mean well not quite but well they invented hating women as far as our sort of cultural ideological lineage goes they let's be they real. played a big part in the way that we hate women i yeah. think it's fair to say yeah and yeah Supernatural somehow reinvented hating women. Yay. Yay. Um, anyway, this episode was just an excuse for us to talk about fandom culture in 2012, I think, mostly. <laughs> A little bit, yeah. We just wanted the waltz down memory lane. Turns out memory lane sucks. Yes. It's just rubbish. Yes. Top to bottom. Yep. Don't watch Supernatural. <laughs> if you already watched Supernatural, like... If you didn't watch past season five, go watch fan fiction and then never watch any more Supernatural. Yep, I I would have to agree with that assessment. Thanks for listening to Classically Trained. This podcast is hosted and produced by Allison Marlin and Julia Peroni on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations, and on the ancestral land of the Ho-Chunk Nation. You can listen and subscribe to this podcast on our website, classicallytrainedpod.podbean.com, and anywhere podcasts are found. If you'd like to reach us, we can be emailed at classicallytrainedpod at gmail.com, contacted via Twitter at classicallypod, or you can leave a review. Finally, some acknowledgements. We'd first like to thank Nicholas Judy and Dark Fantasy Studio, who produced our wonderful music. We would also like to thank the Society for Classical Studies for their help in supporting this podcast. Our next episode will be on Natalie Haynes' 2019 novel, A Thousand Ships. As always, be well, and do not, under any circumstances, do as the Romans did.